welcome. Uh, welcome to Redemption Tucson. Um, and uh, yeah, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Dave. I'm the, um, I'm the lead pastor here. And um, if you've never heard me preach or you're new here, I uh, just want to give you a, 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 a heads up. I have a stutter, so it'll kind of come in and out as we go, but want to make sure that y'all know what that is and you're not kind of caught off guard. And um, before we get into what we're doing this morning, we're going to be back in Mark, and I'll kind of explain that, explain where we're headed. Um, I have one more thing I want to make sure that you're aware of, because this is going to affect us all next week, okay? So um, next Sunday is a, is, a, is a citywide event called Cyclovia, or no one's quite sure how to pronounce it, Cyclovia, or who knows. But um, Cyclovia is an event that is basically used to help promote and foster community to help um, promote alternative means of transportation rather than, you know, like driving our cars and things like that. um, Basically, they shut down the streets and um, it's an opportunity to really get to know our neighbors, which we'll see is actually somewhat of a theme that we'll talk about in the sermon today and just a way to kind of engage and love um, Tucson. And uh, it's important for us because um, it's right here, like right around Safford School. It's going to be going, it, it actually, every, it happens twice a year and it'll move. It was right near my house last time. Some of you know, some of you were there. We kind of hosted some things on my front porch and had a great time. And we plan on doing some things again this time. But hear this, um, we're not fully sure what's going to happen with the parking situation. Um, we've kind of looked at the map. And I'll encourage you to go to the website, cyclovia.tucson.org, and look at the route and kind of find a way to park just in case, um, you know, find somewhere to park, walk here. If you live nearby, I'd encourage you to take the streetcar, walk, bike, roller skate, you know, however it is that you choose to get here. But um, just beware. And I'd encourage you, though, to not see this as an opportunity to be mad at Tucson or be, you know, grumpy and I want to drive my car in here. But again, we say we exist for Jesus's glory and the good of Tucson. And something else that we say is we are a church of downtown Tucson, not just in downtown Tucson. And so this is one of the kind of quirky and yet fun ways that we get to be a part of downtown Tucson. So we are going to have a table with some drinks and some kids crafts and some different things. And we're trying to even partner with um, the school Safford in that to do some stuff. Um, So it'll be a great fun opportunity, but also with some challenge. So again, keep your eyes on the website there and we'll try to, once we find out what we can do with parking, we'll let you know. Okay, so check your email. If you're used to just waiting the email that I send out, don't this week because it might have some helpful information. So, all right. All right. um, Well, this week we're getting back into Mark. So um, if you were here last week for Easter, you noticed we were not in Mark. We kind of took a break. And if you weren't here, if you had to miss last week for for Easter, if you had to go somewhere, if you went out of town, maybe you went to be with some family, I I hope you had a great time. I hope you were encouraged and and, and, and blessed. I know we were here. It was an incredibly fun Sunday. Um, I actually came in this morning and uh, shouted Happy Easter because uh, Jesus is still alive. And um, Easter defines this day, but it was really fun last week to kind of take that time and specifically celebrate together. And so again, if you weren't here, I don't want to say shame on you or you missed out, but um, it was fun. It was a good time. 
But no, I, I, I trust that you were blessed and you had a great time. As long as you celebrated that Jesus is alive, I'm, I know that you had a good time. So this week, where we're going to be, we're back in Mark chapter 2. So if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and hold your hand up. If you do have a Bible, meet me there, Mark chapter 2. If you don't have one, hold your hand up, keep it up, um, don't be shy, uh, hold it up, hold it up, and they will get you a Bible. Si necesitas en español, tenemos. So if you need or prefer the Bible in Spanish, just say Spanish or Espanol or something, and they will get you a Bible in Spanish as well. And um, if you don't own a Bible, keep this one, okay? We want to make sure everybody has a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, you do now. This is our gift to you. So keep this, put your name in it, underline stuff, do all that. So let me catch us up for where we are, okay? Um, here's the trajectory we're headed on as we walk through Mark. We started a little over a month ago in the gospel according to Mark. And the theme was made known from the very beginning. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. And then we're told at the end of that kind of beginning part that Jesus is God the Son. And then Jesus himself proclaims um, that he is, he is bringing or ushering in his kingdom. So the whole point is that Jesus is God the Son, and He's ushering in His kingdom, and then we are invited to ask consistently, who is Jesus and how do we respond to Him? Because the people in this story, in the book, as they interact with Jesus, they don't get it. They don't get who He is or what He's doing. And so um, we're walking through seeing Jesus as the king and seeing what his kingdom looks like as he's ushering in his kingdom. And so um, we're doing a little, so the whole, that's the whole point of the whole book. The last time we were in Mark, we were doing kind of a little bit of a two-part series where Jesus is interacting with these religious people of the day who I'll explain in a bit, the Pharisees. And they're expecting Jesus to just come and kind of fit neatly into their way of life. And what we saw the last time is that Jesus um, is not just here to kind of fit into new, um, into our systems, and he doesn't just fit neatly in. Instead, he comes bringing total transformation. And then this week, what we'll see is that as Jesus continues to proclaim his authority, what he, what he does is he faces serious opposition as he exposes and deals with our broken and sinful systems. Okay, so that's what we're going to see today. And again, we're in Mark chapter 2, and so we're going to go along in there. And, and just a heads up, too, for where we're headed. If we stay on pace, which hopefully we will, um, we're going to be in Mark, and it works out perfectly, right up until the week before Advent. So Advent is the time right before Christmas where we kind of um, build anticipation for um, the coming of Jesus. And so anyway, just so you know where we're headed, we're going to be in and we're going to end right there, um, uh, right before Advent, okay? So now you know we're all kind of up to speed, and, um, and I will pray, and we'll get into this, all right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, thank you that this is Easter <laughs> again, Easter part two. Um, again, that every day of our lives, every moment of our lives is defined by Jesus, and, um, and by the fact that he has risen from the dead, that, that that has changed all of history and that changes our lives together as individuals and as a church. And so now as we get back into Mark, Lord, I pray that you will um, convict us where need be. 
Lord, ways that we have tried to replace you, where we've built systems up to kind of replace our need for you and even to abuse others that you've called us to love and serve. Lord, um, I pray that you would expose the, the brokenness in our own life, in our church, in our systems, in our city, in our world, and that we will have no choice but to call out for the good news of Jesus and to respond to what you have already done. And so, Lord, we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, meet me in Mark 2. We'll pick right up in verse 23. And one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. He is Jesus, by the way. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So, um, as we've talked about before, in 21st century, you know, Tucson, Arizona right now, um, most of us are not from Jewish background, and most of us would miss some of the really important things that are going on here right from the start. The first thing is the Pharisees. The Pharisees are talking about the Sabbath, and you and I might just read that and go along and have some of our own assumptions, but we need to stop for a minute and kind of learn what's going on here. All right, so the Pharisees, it's really important. We've talked about them before, but we can't miss who they are because the Pharisees are a group of people, kind of self-assigned religious authorities, and their whole starting point of who they are is that they exist to basically um, be prepared for the coming of Jesus, basically to be prepared for God's promise to come and bring in his kingdom and to usher in his kingdom and to, to reveal the king. And, and so they set their whole way of life up under that um, expectation. But what happens over time is um, they do anything but. They're, they're, the, the word Pharisee means set apart ones. And they do set themselves apart. But not in a good way, not to be rightly prepared for the coming of the king. But instead what they do is they create all these systems and rules that in a sense really sets them up to not even need God. Because now they have all these rules and they think their relationship with God and their status and their social standing is kind of um, um, by what they observe and what they do. And it replaces their relationship with God. And... Primary to who they are, God's mission for his people has always been to love others. In the very beginning, God, Almighty God, created humanity. He created people to be a reflection of himself. And he gave us the purpose of reflecting him, relating with him, and, and, and caring for the world. Loving others and pointing others to God. But the Pharisees kind of self-appointed themselves and created a way of life, a religious way of life, that basically in turn keeps God out and ostracizes others. Anyone who doesn't fit into their little club, into their group, is now ostracized. And you become a part of their group by observing all the rules the way they say those rules need to be observed. And and so we tend to think of them as like the secret police, like maybe assigned by God to be like the narcs, you know, like the hall monitors to kind of, oh, you're you're out of line. Don't run. Don't, you know, do this. Don't do that. No PDA, whatever, you know, that they kind of do that. And then um, and then God assigns them. But that's not the case. They're self-appointed, but they have incredible influence. Okay, the majority of the people, the common people, really care about what the Pharisees think. 
And think about like the cool crowd in your school. All right? I don't know what comes to mind for you. Perhaps you were in the cool crowd and you're like, yeah, that's just how it is. And perhaps maybe you weren't and you were maybe right on the outside trying to get in or, you know, maybe bad things come to mind like, you know, wedgies and getting thrown into lockers and or whatever it is. You, you think of like a cool crowd at school. No one appoints them that, right? No one's like, you are the cool crowd. This crowd is here. This, right? It's like there, it's just kind of happens. And sometimes it's really bad, like I said, you know, wedgies and spitwads or whatever it is and things like that. But usually it's just kind of, for whatever reason, they kind of set culture and they kind of define the way the school is run in some ways. Well, the Pharisees are kind of like that. They're self-appointed, but they have incredible influence. Okay, so we need to get who they are. So when they speak up to Jesus, it's like, oh man, we're, Jesus is getting kind of called out. He's getting called to task by some really influential people. And then the Sabbath, all right? So we'll understand the Pharisees more as we go on. But the Sabbath, again, in modern, in the West, in the 21st century, we do not get Sabbath at all, right? We, like, I, this, I, I was tempted to kind of hijack this, this, uh, this, this passage and just talk about Sabbath, because we don't Sabbath well. The word for Sabbath means rest. But that wouldn't be honoring God's word. Because really the main point is not how to rest well. But I do want to just take a second and let us recognize that we do not get what they're talking about here. Right? Like um, someone was once said, like, what matters most to you? Think about what do you do right before you go to bed and right when you wake up. For a lot of us, it involves something like this. A phone or an iPad, or some kind of smart something, and it's designed to, you know, make us more productive, and give us more relaxing time, and more freedom, and whatever it is, and trust, guys, I'm right there with you, by the way, this isn't me on the high horse, I mean, I'm convicted as I even say these things, right, but we don't get what it's like to rest well, we work constantly, we kind of have blurry lines of what work is and what rest is. Like you, you may even be working right now. You might be, you know, I might think you're on your smartphone reading the Bible. You might be answering an email. I don't even know. If you are, that's between you and God. Um, if your phone suddenly blows up, hey, it's not on me, but I may or may not have prayed that that would happen. But, but honestly, right? Like we don't get rest. Okay, so we, we do. Rest is a really good thing. Sabbath was an ordinance from God. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's something that God gave to the people and said, you need to rest. On the seventh day, when God created everything, He rested. And then the fourth of the Ten Commandments, God says, honor the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath. Rest. It's a really good thing. But what these people have done, and what we'll see as we go on, is they've taken this thing, something God has given, again, to help them to relate with God, to love God, and to love others. To be a testimony, to be a, um, a proclamation to the rest of the world about the good character of God. They were to do that by honoring the Sabbath. But they've hijacked it and made it into a rule. So again, just before we move on, let me explain how honoring the Sabbath says something of God. Because God created the world. The one true God created all things. And on the seventh day, he rested. 
And that word rest doesn't mean like he just took a nap or kind of kicked back and watched football. What it means is that God then entered into his consistent rule and reign. So when God rested, it means that he, he took his place on the throne, said, I am God, you are my people, and he started to live and to rule and to carry out his authority over all creation. And he commanded the people to rest for their good so they could get a break, but also by doing so to make a bold proclamation about who God is. Okay, so they're, they're, they're saying, I depend on God. God the creator is in charge, not me, not my busy schedule. And then they're also saying, no, the one true God, the creator, is who I surrender to, is who I live in relationship to. And so by observing the Sabbath, they were blessing others. Okay, they were saying something good about God. But what do they do? They take it and they hijack it. And now they start to use it as a way to, to put others down, right? To call out Jesus. You're not honoring the Sabbath. Your people are picking heads of grain, which, by the way, is not even their worst defense. Because they're on a journey. They're traveling. That's a worse, according to Jewish law. What they're doing, they're traveling, is worse than just picking some grain. But the Pharisees are so kind of, they've, they've missed the point so much that they just pick whatever they can. And they're like, guys, you're breaking one of our rules. And then Jesus answers them, right? Picking right up, what does he do? He, he, he answers them in verse 25. He says to them, have you never heard what David did when he was in need and was hungry and how he and those with him, how he entered the house of God? And, and he goes on and he explains what they did. It's, it's an event where David is wandering, King David. And so let me, let me point this out, okay? Because again, we would normally miss this. If you remember, Jesus doesn't always refer to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures. But here he does. Usually he speaks on his own authority. He often quotes the Old Testament, but he just taps into the fact that he is the author. He has the authority to say what is right, what is not right. But in this case, he reminds them of their own Scriptures. Because as he talks about himself, he's tapping into their source of hope. Again, their whole identity, their whole way of life is built on replacing God with their list of rules. And Jesus says, remember David? And they would be like, oh yeah, David. David was the king. He's the greatest king that Israel has ever known. And they, 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 have, they revere David in the highest place. And then he goes on and says, not only David, but the people who were with him. So they're reminded, oh yeah, David and his followers, they did something like this. They ate, they kind of broke the rules. And Jesus is, what he's doing here is he's reminding them of David, and he's associating himself with David. Because their hope was that one day a king in the line of David would come. And would bring in the kingdom of God. But again, they've so drastically missed it. That their idea of David is like, oh yeah, someone would come and would fit really neatly into our system. We've got our way of life going. We've got all our rules. And a king will come who will obey all our rules. And will, but he'll be a little more powerful. He'll fit neatly into our popular crowd. And he'll make us all the more popular and and yet he'll also be you know whatever captain of the football team and homecoming queen and he'll do all these good things he'll he'll be like the coolest of the cool and he'll fit right into our way of life and so as Jesus is preparing them for what he's about to say and he is 
pointedly, this is the first point, the first place of many where Jesus will affiliate himself with David. Because he's reminding them, your hope is in something. I am the answer to your hope. But you've created a system that leaves me out. That forces you to miss me. A religious system. And so let me just say how he does this. And we'll get to it in a couple weeks here. But in a couple places where Jesus is associated with David. Because in Mark chapter 10, it's referred to that Jesus is called the son of David. And that happens a couple times. Son of David. So again, the audience that would be reading through this would be prepared from what we're in right now. Oh yeah, Jesus and David. There's a connection. Jesus called out the Pharisees by reminding them of David. When Jesus is called the son of David, it's to remind, oh yeah, he is the promised one coming in the line of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises David, one will come from your line, one who's even better than you, a king who will come to usher in the perfect kingdom. And Jesus is the answer to that hope. He is the son of David. Humanly speaking, he's fully man, comes in the line of David. But then elsewhere in Mark chapter 12, Jesus would have this whole interaction where he's also called the Lord of David or David's Lord. So that the people and their systems are being exposed that Jesus is fully man, the son of David, but he's also fully God. He's, he's David's Lord. And again, these people have built a system that they, they can't even fathom that. But Jesus is showing that he is the long-promised answer to their hope. That God's designed for the people to relate with him. For God to be God and the people to be his people would only be met by God himself coming, fully God and yet fully man. To, to be God the Son, to usher in his kingdom. And yet in this interaction, specifically with the Sabbath, the people don't get it. Because he's breaking one of their religious rules. They've set life up, perhaps like you and me, in such a way that our religious activities, our ways of, of, of doing life, our ways of worship, actually set us up to now leave God out and, 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 and ostracize others. Though God called us to love God and depend on God. And to have our very existence be to be a testimony and a blessing to others. We take life and we make it in such a way that we leave God out and we abuse one another. So Jesus exposes that in his affiliation with David. He says, no, I am the answer to your hope. And then he goes on here at the end here in verse 27. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. His, what he says in verse 28 is, is making verse 27 true. Okay, so what's he saying in verse 27? The Sabbath, you've taken it. God gave it. It's a really good thing. Sabbath rest is good. Okay, we need rest. Can I have an Amen. Right? So Mr. Tyre, we need rest. But also, it's not just a good thing, not just to kick back and watch football or golf, the Masters. I'm excited for that too, by the way, if you are. Like, right? These things are good, but it's also something that God has given to say something true of Him. The Sabbath is to remind us and to tell the world, God is God and I am His. I'm not God, He is God. 
And to live in such a way that it's a blessing to others, a blessing to the world. And yet these guys have taken it and they've distorted their very reason for existing. The Pharisees, they're not a set-apart people used to honor God and call others to worship Him and be a blessing to the nations as God created His people to be. But instead they've hijacked the Sabbath and now they've placed a burden, a yoke, a weight on the people. And the people would know that, right? All the crowds who are around are like, yeah, the cool crowd. They give us wedgies. They use the Sabbath to keep us down. They use the Sabbath to make themselves better and to keep us down. And I'm so afraid to do anything because maybe, you know, these people, the Pharisees will come in and will say, see, you're not doing things right. You're not honoring God because of the way you fail to honor the Sabbath. And Jesus is not saying the Sabbath itself isn't good, but he's pointing out you've hijacked it. You've missed the very point of what it means to be God's people, to depend on Him, and to be a blessing to others. So Jesus says, you've missed it. The Sabbath was made for man, but with that is the truth that man was made with a purpose, to love God, to glorify God, and to be a blessing to others. And then Jesus has the authority to say that because of verse 28. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, I can say that. Because the very God who said, honor the Sabbath, is right here telling you, you've missed it. And Jesus, Jesus is, is, is upping the ante. He's asserting his authority. And we'll see that happen even more now as we transition and get into chapter 3. So... Picking up in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, we did this last time. Turn to your neighbor and say, welcome to chapter 3. It's been a while. We've been marching through here. Verse by verse going. It'll, it'll kind of pick up. We're starting to pick up the pace a little bit. But again, welcome to chapter 3. And so now Jesus has another interaction with the Pharisees. And it has to do with the Sabbath. The same kind of thing. But pick up with me in chapter 3, verse 1. And again, Jesus, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. This scene, Jesus comes in, and there's a man there with a withered hand, all right? We'll get to him in a minute in verse 3. But there's a guy there, Jesus enters in, into the synagogue, that's their kind of place of worship. It's the Sabbath, okay? And they have all these rules that are written about who can heal who and who can do what and all these things. And, and, and we'll get to in a minute how their rules, it's, it's almost silly for us as we see it that everything they do is to keep other people out. It's to, it's to hurt others. It's to elevate themselves, to replace God, and to, and to ostracize others. And we'll see that. But did you see what they're doing? There's a man there with a withered hand, and they're not like, oh, here's an opportunity to extend compassion, to live out our very purpose as the created people of God, as the image of God, to be a blessing to others. Instead, they see this guy as a trap. They're like, hey, this guy with the withered hand, Jesus is known for doing some things, for healing people with these kinds of things. What are we going to do? And they're, they're waiting. They're, they're trying to lure him. What um, came to mind for me, have you, I know we have at least one attorney in here, perhaps more people who are attorneys or maybe you watch 
shows with attorneys or whatever, whatever it is. If you've ever seen perhaps the best courtroom scene, there are a lot actually. I love courtroom scenes, but one of the best, I watched it a couple times this week just because um, I was thinking of A Few Good Men. Okay? You, might, you might have remembered this, where a very young Tom Cruise, very young, different, Tom Cruise is an attorney. And, um, and some people, a Marine is on trial. Actually, two Marines are on trial. And one of their witnesses, who actually kind of proves to be the ultimate antagonist, Jack Nicholson. I always get confused. It's, again, the Masters is going on. I always want to say Jack Nicholas, but... Not him, not the golfer, Jack Nicholson, you know, here's Johnny, the guy. Well, he's there playing the same character he always plays, and he's on trial, and he's sitting there kind of arrogantly, and he's saying these things, and he says to Tom Cruise, you feel like, you think you're entitled, and Tom Cruise very snappily kind of flashes a smile and says, I am entitled, I'm entitled to the truth, we're all entitled to the truth, and then, um, and then he says, you want the truth, Jack Nicholson says, you want the truth, What's he say? See, we know it. We know the scene. You can't handle the truth. You know, he kind of snarls back at him. And then he goes on this rant. Tom Cruise has trapped him. He's lured him. And he goes on this rant and he basically exposes himself. I think he gets thrown in jail for what he says. And he goes off on this rant. And Tom Cruise has trapped him. He says, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. And he goes on and gives the true story and outs himself. And he's a colonel and gets all this stuff goes bad. But anyway, the point is that he gets caught. He gets lured. And the Pharisees think they're the attorneys here, and they're so smart, and they're going to trap Jesus, right? The cool crowd. Oh, here's our, we're going to out Jesus once and for all. We're going to prove him wrong. Like you and me, when our systems, when our way of life, when the things we've built up to keep God out and to elevate us above other human beings, when those things are challenged and exposed, we resist And these people resist, and they think, we've got Jesus. But guess what? Jesus isn't on the trial seat. (laughs) No, he authoritatively and confidently continues on in this interaction. And what we'll see here is that each time throughout Mark, Jesus asserts his authority and faces greater opposition. Then he asserts his authority all the more and faces even greater opposition. Asserts his authority, faces greater opposition. And we'll get there. But in this case, they think they've trapped Jesus, but instead Jesus is revealing the wickedness of their hearts, of how they've how they've kept God out, how they are abusing other humans and using their religion to do so. But first he says, you, come forward. The guy with the withered hand, their bait, he calls him forward. And I don't know if you have any kind of a disability or whatever it might be, but sometimes we all have something, right, where we just want to be hidden. Though I'm a preacher and I have a speech impediment, I know that wasn't the best idea if I wanted to hide from people, but I'll admit there are times where I don't want it to be exposed. I don't want to answer the phone or I don't want to read out loud in seventh grade science class, for example, because people might laugh at me. No, um, but, uh, but, but you know, we all have these things where we're like, I don't want to out myself right now. I don't want to be seen. And the Pharisees use this guy and his disability as a trap. Jesus calls this guy forward, yes, to make a point, 
Yes, to expose the wickedness of his enemies, of the Pharisees, but for the good of this individual. This guy likely did not want to be called forward. He didn't want attention to be brought to him. But Jesus pushes through that and calls him forward. Because Jesus wants to show his grace. He wants to show the love of God, the undeserved favor to somebody. Again, for God's glory, his good, the good of this guy with the withered hand, and for the good of others. He wants to reveal the goodness of God by restoring this individual. And one quote I just want to share with you here that I read this week from a guy named James Edwards, not Jonathan Edwards, if you've ever heard of him. That's not who this is. But this is a modern-day theologian, and he said this. He said, Faith is not a private wager, but a public risk that Jesus is worthy of trust when no other hope can be trusted. Can you put yourself in this guy's shoes? There's this whole interaction here. Jesus is is restoring the way things ought to be. He's bringing in his kingdom, and he does it through a broken person. Not in spite of him, not as a piece of bait like the Pharisees do, but for his good. The Pharisees wanted to use this guy, maybe expose him, maybe he would be mocked, maybe he would be ostracized for being associated with Jesus. Their hearts are exposed, and yet Jesus reveals his good character. He wants to restore this guy. He wants to heal him. So in verse 3 there, he calls him forward, and he says, you. And then while the guy's standing there, he calls out the Pharisees. He asks him a question. Again, he flips the script, right? Now, he's Tom Cruise. They're Jack Nicholson. Don't quote, don't tweet that I said Jesus is Tom Cruise. That's, I'm not saying that, but... Jesus is now revealing. He's the one asking the hard questions. And he says, you tell me, is it better to do good or to do evil? Is it better to heal or to kill? Seems like an easy answer, right? Oh, let me think. Oh, kill. Right? But these guys don't answer. They're like, a trick question. We're not going to answer. And so Jesus sits there in silence. His anger is stirred. Do you see this interaction there? He calls them forward. He asks them this question, and it says, They were silent. And then verse 5, He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He has anger and grief simultaneously. Okay, this isn't anger like you or me, like somebody cuts us off or takes our parking spot and we're mad and we somehow call that righteous anger. This is God's anger toward the broken systems that we have created to keep him out and to ostracize us, to further break our relationships with other human beings. And Jesus sits there, angry, grieved, maybe silent, How do you feel with silence? Can you picture the scene? Jesus asked this this question. What's better, good or evil? Death or healing? And he sits there. The wheels are turning. He's looking at his accusers. And he's authoritatively exposing the brokenness in their own hearts. And then he says, stretch out your hand. 
The guy stretches out his hand and it's healed. Jesus doesn't shy away from the cool crowd. As he asserts his authority, he faces greater opposition in what happens. See, like, oh man, I've been outed. They're not gonna, they're gonna expose me. No. He shows that he is the one. He is the king bringing in his kingdom. He's exposing not in such a way that's going to fit into nice little systems. And that even in the face of greater opposition, he asserts his authority. He exposes our brokenness and reveals that the only hope of restoration as God's people, as relating with one another, comes through Jesus, the king, bringing in his kingdom. And something else here, that guy with the withered hand was restored by God's grace. But it doesn't come without a cost. Again, the Pharisees were going to prove their point at the expense of this guy with the withered hand. Jesus proves his point and heals this individual at his own expense. Because what happens is opposition toward him Increases. What happens in verse 6? And then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. How to kill him. Jesus heals this guy, shows compassion. They wanted to expose him. They wanted to mock him. Jesus heals him. They wanted to trap Jesus. Jesus is revealing the good news of his kingdom. And he asks the question, what's better, to heal or to kill? They don't answer with their words, right? But they do with their actions. What's better, to heal or to kill? They're quiet. Jesus heals, and then they plan to kill him. They reveal the, the wickedness that comes in the systems that we create to keep God out and to keep others down. And lastly, I have to point out here, again, something that we will easily miss as we close it says they went out and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. We don't know who the Herodians are in our day, right? We don't get this. Think if you know like Michael Savage and Rush Limbaugh, and they all of a sudden start to conspire. Okay, think Fox News and like CNN or NPR, whatever the far left is that we could think of. Okay, think of like natural sworn enemies today all of a sudden conspiring with one another. Okay, the Herodians and the Pharisees hated each other. Hated each other. The Pharisees, remember, their whole life was religious order. They were the ultra-religious people of the day. They were the far right. They were the Christian conservative coalition or whatever you think of. They, they kept everyone out. They did. They lived their lives in this way. They, they had all these structures and systems, religious life in this way. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were wiling out partiers. They were Jewish by culture. But they adopted the, the ways of life of the Romans. They were living crazy, wild, loose, you know, party life. They didn't, they didn't really care about religious rules and systems. And they fought with one another. They were enemies of one another. But Jesus exposes that they have an even greater enemy. 
That, that both of them are relying on their way of life, on their systems to define who they are, how they relate with God, and how they relate with others through their systems. And Jesus shows that who he is in his kingdom is offensive to their way of life. Okay, think about this. One author and pastor, Tim Keller, said the gospel, that means the good news, the good news of Jesus stands between two thieves. Religion and licentiousness. Religious rules and, you know, liberal, no reigns freedom. Both are thieves, are enemies of the gospel. Yeah, they might, they might seem to be enemies of one another, but they're actually both the exact same thing. They're both ways of life designed to keep God out and to keep others down. And yet Jesus shows that his way, that his kingdom, he says elsewhere, the great commandment, the very meaning of life is to glorify God for our joy and the good of others. That we say all of life is all for Jesus. What that means is every facet of life, everything about us is designed to elevate God, to glorify God as we surrender to him, as we live in light of his grace for our joy and the good of others. Not to create religious systems that keep God out and keep others down. And so these guys, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the, the law and do whatever you want. Okay? YOLO and, uh, you know, never do anything wrong. Be perfectly good. The hall monitor. They're both opposite of God's good grace, his undeserved favor. Okay, if you don't hear me, let me just say this. If you're not picking up on this, are these not the same things? That religion, the Pharisees say, by doing all the right things, my church attendance, my, by um, praying every morning, by observe, by coming to church, by doing all the things, by helping serve Safford, by going out and being a part of Seclovia, by doing everything, by doing all these things, all those are great things, by the way. But... If our understanding is religious life, that this now puts God in my debt. If I do these things, I'm now welcomed by God. And everyone else who doesn't do those things is lesser than me. I'm right with God because I do all these things. No one else is right with God. No one else is, is a good person because they don't do all the things I do. That is anti. That's an enemy of Jesus' message, of the good news that you are restored to God and restored to your purpose in life and your relationship with others through His grace, His undeserved favor alone. Do you see how religion is an enemy? On the flip side, licentiousness. The Herodians say things like, everything's good. I'm good with all of humanity as long as you don't make any absolute truth claims. I'm going to make an absolute truth claim that all absolute truth claims are wrong. Right? Have you heard this before? Um, I'm going to say that everything's good, everything goes, as long as you don't believe that there are some rules and boundaries. So you can't go on with your way of life. You, if you have any kind of religious belief, if you have any kind of faith that says that is the only faith, then um, you're wrong. 
But all faiths are, are, are okay. All things are good as long as you don't disagree with me. That's the Herodians and the Pharisees. And both are resisting the authority and the grace of Jesus. And yet Jesus continues to confidently usher in his kingdom. Jesus faces great opposition to expose and blow up our systems that we've created, our religion, our licentiousness to replace him. And the good news of Jesus is that through faith in him, through responding to him, you and I can be restored as his people for God's glory, our joy, and the good of others. And again, I want to point out, Jesus doesn't shy away. This is the last of these conflicts that he has for this season, his conflicts with others. But does he shy back? They resist him, he asserts his authority. They resist him again. And that, I'm going to give away the end of the story. But even at the cross, Jesus hangs there facing painful, shameful opposition hanging on the cross, and yet, does he shy away from his authority? No. He authoritatively says, it is finished. The rules and religious systems, religion and licentiousness are done away with. The the consequence of sin, the debt has been paid in full. He authoritatively asserts himself as king while hanging on the cross. And then he's opposed once more by death. He breathes his last death, and he dies. He's laying on the tomb. He asserted his authority and said it is finished, and then, oh yeah, death comes in with a left hook. Seemingly knocked out, facing that opposition, what happens? He gets the last word. We celebrated it last week. We celebrate it every week. Jesus victoriously rose from the dead so that we now see that his authority, that all of his claims That the good news that he is bringing is that through faith in him, only through faith in him, you and I can be restored to life as God created us to in his image for God's glory, our joy, and the good of others. Let's pray. Again, Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would, um, as always, be convicted or um, encouraged. Lord, through this time, I confess there are so many things about my life, about our lives, the life of our church, that we can so easily hijack the good things you have given us and turn them into ways to replace you and keep others out. And yet, Lord, you have created us to be your people, to bear your image, to live all of life in dependence upon you and your good grace, your undeserved favor. Lord, we confess ways that we have mistreated other humans because we've created rules that they don't fit into. Lord, you do claim absolute truth. You do claim absolute authority, but you alone. And it's always defined by your absolute grace. So Lord Jesus, I pray that even now as we respond, we will consider how have we hijacked your truth, how have we replaced you and hurt others through our religious systems. And yet, Lord, I pray too that we will simultaneously respond with great joy.
that you have ushered in your kingdom, that you have restored us as your people in our identity and our purpose through the good news of Jesus, his death on the the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Lord, so now may we respond accordingly and rightly to your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.